Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I'm the Director Owner of Snow Pro Ski School based here in the Port de Soleil in Switzerland. Hope you're all well and um, for this episode, episode 37, I bring you part two of the interview with Peter Cure. Um, I very much enjoyed speaking to Peter and, and I speak to him, you know, I could listen to him for, for, for days and so the interview, we had to split it down into two parts in the end. Um and in this particular interview, you'll hear the sort of the remaining topics that we didn't get a chance to get in, in, in part one. Um, we talk about effects of Brexit. We talk about transcendent performance going beyond kind of the acquired knowledge phase. Um, we talk about his time in within Basie. And, uh, and we also talk about the old Austrian stories uh, and the, the long-awaited living in a barn story. Um, I really hope that you enjoy this uh, remaining interview. I, I'm looking out onto, it's been a strange winter here in, in Switzerland. It's, been, it's still been quite cold. It hasn't warmed up at all um, this summer. And uh, I'm looking out now at a cloudy Don du Midi. They've been covered in cloud all summer. Um, and yeah, there's been this sort of fresh wind that, that's just been around for the last two months and it uh, doesn't really feel like summer's got going at all. Um, very, very strange weather systems that we've had been going through here uh, this summer. Um, I got uh, some correspondence, which I thought I would read out uh, if you're interested. Um, I, it was from Doug Bryce. Hi, Doug. I hope you're well. Um, he said to me, um, hi Dave, currently listening to your latest interview, PK, one of the best episodes, he comes, comes across very well, a fountain of knowledge. Um, the rabbit hole part of the conversation interested me. Conversations about pressure used to confuse me lots. Um, though over time I've come to the conclusion that it's because of the way that pressure is described in Bayesian, i.e. is pressure really a steering element that we apply as an input or is pressure something that we need to control? Uh, my opinion is that it's both, depending on the scenario. Um, in a snowplow turn, we initially learn to turn the skis as beginners using pressure. Um, though as we get better and move into parallel turns, pressure becomes something that we need to control during the turn. Um, so when your man Grant talks about early pressure, which is a recurring theme in modern technique, he is not wrong. Although perhaps a more nuanced explanation would be to create early pressure before the fall line. Interestingly, I'm told that the Canadian system only has two steering elements, rotation and edge. Um, yours sincerely, Doug. Uh, P.S. I won't give you my opinion on Brexit slash vaccine passports, uh, winky face. However, great podcast. Um, we had some back and forward uh, conversation on that, but... Uh, um, yeah, the, the the pressure one is 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 an interesting one. I've still got my thoughts on that, and I'm interested to kind of uh, interested to expand my own thoughts on that this winter and um, sort of develop my ideas about that particular topic. Uh, anyway, I leave you. I'm not going to put uh, anything in the middle of this one. Um, I've been recording podcasts like crazy. I've got a mega long one that I did with um, with John Olson uh, in Verbier, uh, which will be going out in probably November, December. And the next one is with uh, Dan Egan, uh, US Hall of Fame skier and extreme skier in the late 80s, early 90s, which will be the next one. Um, and that's a really, really cool interview. So, um 
that's one certainly will be much of interest to our uh, to our American listeners. Um, hope you're all well. Uh, enjoy what remains of your summer, and I will catch you on the next episode. Welcome for part two of this interview, Peter Cure. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Steve. Good. good to see you again. We're about a month on now from uh, from our chat. I was only, I was going to do this the following week, but you know how things get away from you or me as well. Um, and a lot's happened since then. Uh, I'm going to tell you about one of the things that's happened to me. So shortly after the uh, shortly after the the interview we had last time. I got an, um, a more, I'd sort of heard rumours of it, but I got a more official thing from the Swiss government and the Swiss government have basically said, due to Brexit, uh, you guys, uh, you, you guys being Brits, you guys are now considered a third tier nation, same as South Africans, Kiwis, Americans, whatever, and you've got to find a really, really, really good reason to employ Brits in Switzerland as ski instructors, basically look elsewhere see if you can find any Swiss people and see if you can find any Eurozone people. And, and one of the things in the letter that they said was speaking English is not in itself a criteria for being able to employ people. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So that's put, well, you know, all of my marketing and everything is set up around the fact that we're, you know, English speaking ski school. So it's going to make uh, some complication for us this winter. Um, I've learned over the years that complication is just the life of an entrepreneur it's solving problems and i think we're going to be fine i'm not panicking about it but um how does let's jump to that a little bit how does that affect you running a ski school in france this year so brexit effects in in effect um it's kind of similar um and the what what france is really looking at is people who've already been working in France for more than five years, um, then as long as they can prove that they have been in France for more than five years, um, then you can get a carte sejour, which means that you, you have, the, so, so the right to continue to, to work and live in France is, is available to people. So, so some of my ski instructors may meet that criteria depending on, on what they've done over the last five or six years um, to establish that they, they exist. So if they've been paying rent and they can prove that, and, and if they've paid taxes in, in France, then again, that proves that they've, they've, they've been here, then, mm. then they can continue to, to work. Is that, let's really drill down on that, just because you know, I know that's affecting a lot of people, but if you're someone who just comes and goes, you arrive in December, you work the season and you disappear, British or whatever, like how many people this affects actually, but is is that that going to be considered enough, or is it like you've got to be living here, prove that you lived here year round, you're contributing social, you know, to the economy. My my understanding is um, no. I I think you just need to prove that you have been doing stuff doing stuff here for on an annual basis for for more than five years. Hmm. Um, so for for example, if you normally in France, if you're renting somewhere, 
um, you you would have you'd pay tax to have the tassio, mm-hmm. um, and and if you've got exam for example proof that you've paid tax to have the tassio for for five years, mm. then that would be evidence. Um, house insurance, for example, would, yeah. would be another. Uh, and typically, if you're renting, that's. But it, again, it depends on how you've done it. Again, if you've paid tax, then then again, that's evidence. Um, so a lot of you know potentially ski instructors have been working in France should have paid some tax every year. Mm. That again proves that that and it gives them the opportunity and it's they've they've the French have created the specific pathway for British people in the short term. Okay, which is a more uh, it's a, it's an easier process than if you're coming from anywhere else. Mm. Um, so the, the the French are being quite helpful in that, and I think they just want to make it easy for themselves yeah. and, and get through yeah. it. And I suspect that 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 pathway will will get shut down in a year or so. Um, yeah, and they'll it'll be the same as everybody else that isn't uh, that doesn't have a, a European passport. Yeah. Um, it's crazy, isn't it, British? But you're not a European passport. No. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. So there's that that side of it. The second part is. Um, I now need to look at um, recruiting instructors, new instructors, um, potentially with with passports that, that aren't British. Um, you and me both. <laughs> and yeah, uh, but the, the the reality for me is it's a, it's not about whether you're British or not. It's about the quality. So, yes. so my, yeah. my ski school is all about quality, and it's about hiring the right people. Again, I think the ability to speak English really well, their culture, mm-hmm. um, as in having fun, being good teachers, but having fun, um, having a customer care focus, um, and creating a good experience. Um, there are people, there are a lot of good Europeans mm. um, who can do that. Um, and there are some really, really good instructors. And I've used a few in the past, Italians and Austrians. Um and they've been really good and they've been well received by, by my clients. So my, my duty to my clients is to provide the best possible service. Mm. Um, and I, I believe I can still do that. Um, yeah. And it's just about um, recruiting the right people. How does that... Um, no, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm along the same thing. That part, of, part of the thing that I really bang on about is that you know, a lot of our, our instructors were Anglophones, so they would get that sort of, there'd be certain cultural references that you get, you know, speaking one Anglo person to another, which you, I, well, now I'm about to find out whether that crosses European boundaries, um, because certainly we're going to have to find some people that have got European passports to replace those guys that can't come. And I've been speaking to some of the, the, the guys, you know, trying to find uh, a solution for those people but every doorway is blocked you know like there is the, you, you meet something you meet one of the criteria over here but it doesn't quite work on this one over here so you can't come you know that kind of thing um, it's yeah it's going to be really really interesting and it's very sad for those people because I've got a couple of guys who are sort of caught in this trap where they've been going through and progressing their, their qualifications mm. almost there I've almost got everything. Well, they've got the hard bits, you know, you're a test and they've got all that. So, you know, they're almost at full cert where they will be able to convert their qualification into other, other nations thing and boom, something else comes along. Yeah. It's so sad. 
it's heartbreaking, you know, over the work and the money and everything that they've spent. I feel really sorry for those people who are in that that position where they've been working towards a goal Mm. and suddenly, because they don't have, they've got a British passport, there's no solution anymore. Yes. Um, And and they're they're suddenly limited to where, where they can work. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think this will change because I think probably at some point the Swiss are going to realise that you know half. Well, maybe they will, maybe they won't, maybe they don't care. Um, that that you know, there's 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 a bunch of places in in the Alps, Zermatt and Verbier, the two I'm really thinking about, where they need those people, absolutely need those people. Maybe there'll be some sort of agreement, but the pace of change is slow in Switzerland, so uh, so maybe it won't be this winter. I sincerely hope that it is, but we'll see. We'll see, especially for those guys. But what I've said to my guys is, look, your position remains open. I want to keep. I want to. The, the team I had last year was so good. PK it was really, really good. And I've said to those guys, hey, you know, if you can come back, there's a position for you. Like you're, you're more yeah. than welcome. Like, please, you know, <clears throat> this year yeah. might be a bit of a do what you can this year. But uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a crying shame. Yeah. Really, really. Badly thought through Brexit thing. Yeah. But hey. Anyway. But, well, anyway, but, but previous to that, talking about your business here in France, presumably every year there is a sort of a limited number of instructors that were able to qualify to work in France anyway, especially for, you know previously when you were trying to employ Brits. But, but in general... In the past, have you ever had any issues to do with sort of recruitment of finding the people that have got Eurotest and all the other bits and pieces that they need? It's quite a high level. There's only a limited number of people past that age year. Yeah, I think, again, for, for, for my ski school, um, the, my, the limitations in my business are, are the number of instructors I can employ. Yeah. It's not clients. Um, we have a, a, lot, a huge number of very loyal clients. Um, and most winters I end up turning away 80% of my inquiries because I don't have enough instructors. <laughs> oh my God, that made me cry. Uh, I can't bear uh, saying no. I can hate uh, it. Yeah. I hate it. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and again, this is when, it's partly because we, we have wanted to employ British stroke instructors who, as you say, are, are Anglophone, mm-hmm. who understand the culture, understand the people, have the right culture, have the right attitude. But I haven't stuck to British, I've, as I said, I've had Italians and Austrians working for me and that's gone really well and worked really well. But I'm not just going to employ anybody who who is available mm. um, because it's quality. We charge more than other ski schools. Mm. Um, and we, we commit to a quality product. Um, and... That, that's that's the reality with a quality product is it's that that high quality isn't available all over the place mm-hmm. um, so so therefore I'm limited by by my product rather than by or, or the availability of my product yeah. rather than by the num- number of clients mm-hmm. um, and I suspect this winter is going after all the lockdowns with COVID and everybody's desperate to mm. go on holiday. That's for sure. I suspect this winter is going to be crazy. Yeah. And I'm going to be challenged with providing enough of that product. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I've already got a few people set up. So I think I'll be able to operate at the usual numbers 
Yeah. Um, that's my expectation for this this winter, and I'm still trying to figure out whether some of the guys who who have British passports are will be able to continue, and but they need mm. to get their carte azure. Uh, yeah, yeah. To to do that, and and they need to, they're going through that process. Okay, okay. Because that always struck me as your your issue was that you know there's this sort of funnel of yeah you know with the Eurotest at the top of many pyramids, be it Italians or or, or whoever. Um, that that the supply is limited across the Alps, and it's not just you here in Chatel. You know, there's 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 other ski schools all over the Alps, and these people are in high demand. Yeah, and I mean there are plenty of people with the qualification who are Italians and French and Austrians, um, and that's because they they've grown up in the Alps and mm. they started as kids. So there's there's thousands of these really good skiers yeah. who are available. However, the a lot of those people don't necessarily speak English well enough. Secondly, don't necessarily have the culture attitude that that we need for for our mm. clients. Um, so there's a large number of that those instructors that that would be available who mm. who I wouldn't choose to. to or in avoid. addition, they might not want to travel outside their home village, right? Well, is that as well. the other thing? The yeah. thing I've noticed about Switzerland is often that the, the guys that get full cert there, they just stay in the home village. Yeah. And they teach at their local mountain when they've always grown up, and it's just how they are, you know. It's uh, it's a real localism kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to come back to Bayesian in, uh, in a minute because I really want to ask you about um, the time when you were uh, chief executive. But before that, I just want to quickly. I was listening to part one in the car earlier. We we're talking about that concept of. Um, going beyond just kind of what you know so so you have all the movements but then at some point you're kind of so autonomous that you're just automatically doing the right thing according to what what you need to do and I remember seeing like, that immediately as I got in the car I was listening to his back on, on the way back last time I thought I should have said to him um Two years before he retired, the slalom at Adelboden, Marcel Hirscher coming down the wall, like, like he was dancing. Didn't matter whether he was on the inside ski, outside ski, like complete. If you have a chance, look it up. You know, on YouTube, it will be it will be there, listener, somewhere. But there is, I've never seen such a clear example of someone who is in, and especially in his later years, right, because it was completely, it was almost like he didn't care about the Globes anymore, didn't care about the prize money, didn't care about the sponsorship. He was just doing it almost like it was just to see how good he could do it. And it was extraordinary to watch. It was almost like he was falling down the face, but with like ever such minor little inputs, didn't matter what foot, didn't matter how out of shape he got, just didn't care. Was, I'm going down there, I'm just going to do just what I need to do to get through this course. It's extraordinary to watch. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where, uh, and we talked in the last uh, uh, podcast about about the difference between skill uh, and technique. Um, and I, I, I use the phrase freedom of movement. Um, and we, we have movements. Uh, and this is something that I learned in my... Um, a diploma in sports coaching where where they started to talk about movement patterns and being able to 
take a movement and just sort of investigate that full range of movement, um, whatever it was. And in skiing, that could be lateral separation or rotational separation. So the first step is learn that movement, learn to have range, learn to change the speed you do it at, and then learn to use it in, in a creative, responsive way. And then you become skillful and you have that freedom of movement and you start to learn to adapt and, uh, and, and deal with what's in front of you in a very responsive way. An awful lot of ski teaching is, this is what you do at this point in time and this is right. And what that does is it blocks all of the, that responsiveness. And I've talked a lot to, to musicians and musicians talk about, well, when you learn to play an instrument, it's almost mathematical. You've got to learn the notes. Mm. You've got to learn the movements. You've got yes. to, you know, whether, and you've got to learn all these bits. Uh, and it is quite structured. And you've got to do this at this point. But then to become a really good musician, you kind of have to let go and feel, feel the music. Mm. Um, and I think skiing is very much like that. Um, it's it's a. Uh, uh, you you do need to learn the movements and and this is right from very this isn't something that happens after 10 years of skiing you as a teacher you can develop this stuff in the first hour of skiing mm. you can say right we're going to bend and stretch but we're going to use full range and we're going to play with it um, with balancing we're going to find out our target area and our foot where it feels good and we learn to the feelings and to respond to when we're at, know when we're out of balance, know when we're in a balance. And if you have a good teacher who understands that movement and skill development, you'll progress quicker and you actually become skillful mm. quite quickly. Um, and so much of teaching is, it, it actually stops you becoming skillful. It's mm. like, it's like no, 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 you can't, you can't be responsive. You've got to do it this, at this point and this time. Uh, and there's too much, uh, too many rules getting mm. in the way. And what Marcel Hirscher, and it was very visible, he had, he, was, he had all the movements available and he was free to use them to do what it takes. And he took risks. He was able to take risks because he believed that he could deal with it. Mm. And, and one of the great things about all the very, uh, the very great ski racers, um, people always talk about their ability to recover. Mm. And that's again because they do allow themselves to get out of shape. They do let themselves feel a little bit out of control. Uh, and for me, when I was ski racing, um, it was about, I felt like I was more airborne than grounded. Mm. Um, and I did a fair bit of trampolining. And it was always about, an awful lot of the time, you were. it felt more like I was on a trampoline than stuck to the ground. Mm. Uh, and it was just getting the what you needed to, to, get, to get to the next gate and get fighting to get to a place where you could make the ski work. Fighting. And, and, and it was actually having the freedom to do that. Yeah. Uh, and yes, the, the were, there were definite goals in, right, I've got to be on the outside ski. I've got to have my upper body in a place where I am agile, where mm. I've got, I'm not getting blocked. So, so that's one of the keys 
is you're fighting to maintain your agility so that you can keep working with the skis. Yeah. Rather than I've got to keep my hands in the right place. Um, or I've got to, you know, one of the things I hear some British team members, um, yeah, you've got it on slalom, you've got to have your inside hand in the snow. Yeah. And then half the time they're standing on their inside ski because they've moved inside too much instead of the focus of, right, there's my outside ski, get it working. Mm. And if you're turning quickly enough, you suddenly find your inside skis in the snow. Mm. That's, that's an outcome that's mm. accidental. It's not, it's, it's not a purpose. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I think for me that, that's what real skiing is. And Marcel Hirscher was one of the greats. Mm. Uh, uh, and however, he developed his skiing ability. And I can remember when he first started to get into World Cup, he'd won a lot of Europa Cups. Um, and people started to say, it was an, an Austrian guy I worked with in New Zealand, um, he said, oh, you watch Marcel Hirscher, and every turn is a surprise. It's like, how did he do that? And it's because he broke the rules. Mm. And at that time, he he was very lateral, um, and he, he survived. He was very much a, a survivor in the gates, uh, and he, he was on his limits all the time and took risks. As he progressed through his career, he became uh, more organised in his movements, and he became more accurate. But again, that wasn't so much being technique focused mm. um, but just learning to be more accurate um, yeah they're doing that a little bit at the moment aren't they with Manny Fella because yeah. he's a bit he was a bit I'd say similar he started his career he's a bit of a wild man you know like quite unconventional just seems to be interested in going as fast as possible yeah but they've really tidied him up last season you know it's not as crazy looking as it was before and he managed to get a couple of results out of yeah. it. And, and another one, another example of that is Henry Christopherson. Yeah. Another one who who, who was out of the mould. Yes. Uh, and what what he had was skill. Yeah. Uh, and they've tidied it up a little bit. And the tidying up isn't about, right, go to this. It's just going, right, be more accurate with what you're doing with the skis. Build the pressure here. And, and, and mm. then what you start to find is as they get more focused on that outcome, you start to see some commonalities. But yeah. Underneath it all is all of that, that that the differences they've done, the the the, the different movements, the the ability to get out of control and get back into control, um, is learning to become skillful, and, oh. and not being consistently right all mm. the time. I think one of the beautiful things about skiing is that you can have, you know, the World Cup, ski, ski, race, ski racing for short, you can have guys that are so sort of fundamentally built differently. Yeah. You take, uh, who's the, 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 the tiny guy that's Popoff, isn't it? The Bulgarian guy. And Christofferson, like completely different body shapes, completely different height, can end within point, you know, yeah. something, something, something of each other. It's and just the, amazing. There's this crazy tall guy in Salem at the moment. Oh, uh, Zenhausen. Zenhausen, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, he can't ski the same way. Um, no. he's, he's got to have a different... His, his movements are going to be different. Yeah, yeah. you can see it. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's unfortunate for him because he's, very, he's an extraordinary skier, but he just aesthetically looks <laughs> horrific <laughs> because he's yeah. six foot seven, right? Yeah. And there's... you know, I remember someone saying to me once that Herschel was indeed the ideal height, size, build, shoe size, you know, everything. Everything was the right proportion to make what you want a skier 
to be in tech, certainly yeah. not not in in speed. Yeah. Um, there is a you know apparently there is a certain I don't know where I heard this, but there's a certain boot length where the boot just works. Yeah, perfectly for that kind of thing. I'm not no. sure about that, but Andrew Freshwater said to me um, that when he was in World Cup um, and he was he was downhill mm. mostly, um, he said that just about everybody in the men's World Cup had size eight. Oh yeah, feet. Maybe yeah, it was twenty-seven point five. Yeah, um, uh, and he said there were very few people outside of that size. It was sort of twenty seven point five. Was the was the number? <laughs> was the number? Um, oh, well, that explains uh, a lot. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't I don't know how true that is, but you know, Andy said that at that time he he remember vividly everybody could swap their skis because they yeah. were on the same the same boots, the same boot size. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and I don't know if there's ever been any proper research on that, but that was just a comment from Andrew. That, yeah. Because uh, that's that's the size my feet are, and he says, "Oh, you've got the right size feet," and he's got the, the right, right size feet. ski. Yeah, yeah. Like, we're quite different shapes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. a, yeah. Got the I'm, right feet. I'm in a twenty-eight. That explains everything. <laughs> oh, God, just, a, just a half size. <laughs> oh, could have been so good. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's um. I, it's funny you were saying about the, the, the feeling of flying. I've always, whenever anyone's asked me, a non-skier has asked me what it feels like to ski, I've always said that it feels sort of like a combination of, of doing doing a run of short turns down a reasonably steep pitch and you get it right and you get the flow right. It's always felt to me, one, it feels a little bit like a combination of like dancing and flying. And the other one would be that feeling of going, I don't know if they still exist, like going down a helter-skelter, you know, yeah. those things where you sort of go round yeah. and round on the outside. Yeah. It was always the two sensations that I always associate with, with doing short turns down a, down a steep pitch. You get it right and you sort of you sort of feel like you're dropping off of that old outside ski, you know, or yeah. old, you know, onto your new one. And you, you fall, like you fall through that hole, I call it where your sort of centre of mass goes over the ski, I imagine that there's a sort of, I don't know, like a yoga ball or something, a hole, and my mass falls through that hole. And it's, it's such a nice feeling when you get it right. I think you're absolutely right. And I feel that, you know, once you get to become a reasonably competent skier, it is like being on a roller coaster, mm. but you're in control of the roller coaster. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and so, so you can play with that, those sensations that you experience in things like roller coasters, mm. um, but be in control of them. Mm. Uh, and that's one of the things about roller coasters. You're not in control. <laughs> of them. It's the places are scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same as flying in an airplane for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, you're, you're, you rack up the miles, don't you? So you, uh, or you, you become comfortable with yeah. it eventually. But that's another season gone by. You're not in New Zealand this year. Yes, I know. It's. Uh, yeah, and I'm missing out on the fishing. That's oh, <laughs> mate. <laughs> I know. The fishing. It's, uh, yeah, we talked about it. Is that two years now? Two years. This will be blank. two summers without, without New Zealand. Uh, what are they going to do with excursion? It's like the river's full of fish. It, it will be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the stocks are recovering. <laughs> the, the New Zealanders will be going, oh, God. <laughs> too many fish. <laughs> so I'm Oh, my God. Um, let me, right, so my little indulgence about Marcel Hersher aside, let me take you back to the time when you were Chief Executive of Basie. Um, we talked about the Eurotest being presented to you as essentially a done deal. Is 
Like if you want your guys to eat at the highest table, ski in these nations, this is what you have to do. And you, you, you did as best you could to, to change it so it was fair. Is, is that, it was essentially presented to you like that because sometimes you get a bad rap because you're the signatory on the agreement, right? But I, if it's presented like that and you're in charge at the time, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, I wasn't a signatory because it was actually Dave Renouf was the chairman and Bob Kinnaird was the, the chief exec when that agreement was put in place. Okay. But, but I was involved in the negotiations because I was the, the technical expert for Bayesley. I was their training manager at the time. I can't mm-hmm. remember what the title was. But... What was made very clear by the European Commission, not by the Austrians or the French, by the European Commission, mm-hmm. their experts that we were, we, we were, we, because we, Basie, spent a lot of members' money trying to get the rights for, for our members. Mm. Uh, and, and we had, a, we had legal advice and we, we, we had the British government helping us. And we had this this guy from the European Commission who said, listen, this is reality. The the free movement of labour laws say that every country, whether it's Britain, whether it's France, whether it's Austria, um, whether it's Portugal, they have a right to demand that you meet the same standards that they have in their own country for their own people. so an example of that is United Kingdom. If you were from Italy and you wanted to be a doctor working in Britain, then you had to be assessed as competent as being able to do the job at the same standards that British doctors are expected to meet. Yeah. Um, so it was made very clear that the that, that Basie didn't have a right to say, well, we've got ski instructor qualification, you have to accept it. Mm. The, each country had a right to say, well, hang on a minute, we want to make sure that you do the same as what our people do. So if you're in France and you're French, this is what you have to do to become a ski instructor. And France has the right to say, you have to do the same. Mm. We, and, and, uh, the, and normally... You, you have two pathways for that. One is to do a test. The other is a period of adaptation. Mm. The France, Italy and Austria m- made it clear to the European Commission and the European Commission it supported this, whether it was right or wrong, that a period of adaptation wouldn't work. Mm. So a Bayesian level one coming in yeah. and spending six weeks with a ski school wasn't going to fix the problem with the difference in, yeah, in, yeah. in abilities, yeah. in standards and things like that. Um, and it was based partly based on safety, but partly based on, listen, the, 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 this isn't something that, that will work very well. And it'll be very difficult to... And one of the big things was, and this again came from the European Commission, what you guys want to do is build respect and trust with these other nations yeah. so that they accept your instructors as equals. Um, therefore, we the, the shortest the shortcut to this was to do two tests. Yeah. 
One was the Eurotest, and the other was the European Mountain Safety. And that, over the years, has built trust. And, and an awful lot of people think that um, Bayesley was sold out. Uh, and it wasn't. We, we actually achieved something um, which an awful lot of other European nations have never achieved. We mm. actually had a number of our ski instructors who were able to work in France mm. with respect. Um, with with uh, uh, and the French people saying, yeah, these guys are competent. They're equal to us. They're good. We like them. They, they meet our standards. Mm. Um, and I think the expectation that... Uh, and there is the philosophy of, well, you don't need to be a great ski racer to, to be a good ski teacher. Unfortunately, that is the culture in these Alpine nations. And whether we agree with that or not, we don't have a right to say you have to change what you do in your your country because we disagree with you. Yeah, it'll be a bit like everybody in Britain um, being told by the French, um, you have to change your 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 practices in in, in hospitals because mm. France yeah. thinks this, um, and Britain could say, well, no, we're we're really happy with it. We're not going to lower our standards because it's lower in France. But yeah. that, that, and that's obviously not a real, real example, but it's an example of, of how the, the whole concept of free movement of labour and, and the, the rules and regulations around it worked and why Bayesley really didn't have an option to have Bayesley level 1s and 2s working. Mm. And we did manage to get level threes to become automatic stagiaires. Yes, I heard but of that. that. But for about three years, three or four years. And in the end, that got taken away. Hmm. Um, partly because the French instructors thought it was unfair. All right, okay. Because they didn't have to do the test technique. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, so that was an issue. It's it. You could you could see it from the French point of view, couldn't you? And you could say to you know the entry into the French system. If you're a French guy going, to, you want to work with the SF or whatever. The entry into the French system is to pass the test technique. Yeah, there isn't very many Bayesian level ones and twos who could do that. No, it's a hard test. Yeah, and you know, I only know one person who's managed to do that. Um, and then, you know, then they then then and only then do you start your training. Yeah. You know, that's it's it's not the same. No, it's not the same. And you know, I think that's that, and it's a it's a real issue. Um, and and I think what what we did achieve and what Dave Renouf and and Bob uh, and there were other people involved. I can remember Mark Jones coming in and helping with, with some of the translation. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, he could he can vouch for me how aggressive I was towards the French mm. about accepting our our, our because it, uh, my position initially was we you don't need to be a great ski racer to be a good teacher and and to a certain extent that still is the case I think mm. you do you do gain some experiences and knowledge and understanding of 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 how to develop performance from doing some ski racing and your skiing improves from sure. doing that yeah but. At the time, I, I was very aggressive um, towards the French attitudes. 
um, and, and I can remember Mark translating and saying, <laughs> "You're being too hard here," yeah. <laughs> and you keep saying the same thing, and you need to fight, you need to negotiate. And I'm going, "No, they don't want to negotiate, so I'm not negotiating." And it was a, a real sort of standoff. Mm. And in over a two-year period, um, again from the European Commission, I understood well. There's no, there isn't a solution here where we're going to get basic level ones and twos um, able to work freely without meeting the standards that the the, the French have mm. or the Austrians have or the Italians have. Um, so so we came to this agreement that that worked mm. and it was the best uh, and for me I think it was a good agreement. Yeah. Uh, and Bob Kinnaird was very involved in that, Dave Renouf was very involved in that um, and we came out of it with, with in my view as good a solution as we could get. And of course, now we've lost that because of the Brexit thing. Mm, yeah, well, yeah. Um, yes. But anyway, yes. so that, that's, that's how I see it. And one of the great things about that agreement was, after the agreement, we were part of the team. Mm. We were part of the team. Um, we were part of that Austrian, Italian, yeah. French team. And we were able to continue to influence. And we continued to change the way the Eurotest worked. We, we insisted that the openers had to run at the start and the end. Mm. And before that, the French didn't think they would make any difference. Mm. And when we finally convinced them to do it, the openers, when they went down at the end of the run, were two to three seconds slower. Mm. And they went, oh my God, what a difference. Mm. Um, and they didn't, they, they <laughs> the French hadn't got their heads around that. So... <laughs> That actually made it fairer because then somebody who got who got number forty, yeah, um, had better chance of passing yeah. and got fairer. So we made the Eurotest fairer, and we introduced the the idea that openers from any country had a right to go and be an opener. So if you're running a so if the French are running a Eurotest, Britt Daisy introduced the idea that you, Germany had a right to send an opener to mm. the French test and be part of the opener team. Um, and again, it made it fairer. It made it less able to, to be manipulated by the locals. Mm. Um, so, so by being in that team, again, we continue to, to improve the process and it built trust um, uh, and, and it, it built respect. Mm. And, you know, we, Basie, the British still have, the British the instructors still have a huge amount of respect mm. in France. Um, and at lower levels, um, certainly amongst the ski instructor organisations, um, they have they don't have very, any resistance to British instructors level fours continuing to work in France. When you move higher up, it's the higher up in the government, they go, hang on a minute, no, Britain won't let our fishermen do this or, or, mm. or and, and, and they go no <laughs> yeah we're not going to let British people come into the and, and work mm. um, so you know that that's that's the politics um, yeah they're, I suppose they're looking at it at more you uh, know a sort of bigger overview aren't they yeah rather than the local local level when um, when you so you finished uh, when when did when when did you quit as or leave as as chief executive of Basie? When was was that? Uh, it's been. Was it two thousand and nine, two thousand eight, two thousand and nine? Okay. 
Because, I mean, everyone knows now, by now, that, you know, Bezos had its issues and is currently being, I wouldn't say reformed, but, but certainly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Reworked under the stewardship of, of Jim Lister after quite a torrid time under the previous regime. Um, what was the, what did Bezos look like when you, when you left, left in 2009? Um... So, I was I was chief exec for for almost three years. Um, when I came in, um, the organisation had just made a loss of, of of I think it was about thirty five thousand pound loss for the year. Um, uh, 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 and there was a culture of we we don't want the organisation to grow. We don't want to make any money. Um, it's a not for and it, it was quite um, quite parochial in some ways um, and quite conservative um, and but we were growing because there was demand uh, and, and I, I kept saying because I was the, the training manager before that I kept saying well Bayesley doesn't have a right to say to people well, we're going to limit the number of people who become ski instructors we have this demand uh, and our our role as an organisation is to create pathways for ski instructors, mm. which are achievable um, and realistic, and therefore they should be as cheap as possible. Um, and we need to provide a pathway where we have a good education system, which means people are successful. We, we, we're not trying to stop people becoming ski instructors. We are trying to produce a product Mm. Uh, and our product is our ski instructors and we want our product to be something that people want to buy so if you're a ski school director in Chile or Argentina or Switzerland um, or Japan they go ah Bayesley instructor that's a product that we'd like to buy Mm -hmm. so we need to export it yeah and we need to provide pathways and at the same time, we were growing whether we liked it or not. Our office, we were doing crazy things um, like like hiring porta cabins because we'd run out of space mm-hmm. in the office at Glenmore Lodge. Um, so I came into that and went, right, okay. And at the time, we had about 200, 300, I think about 250, 300,000 pound financial reserve. Mm. Um, but we were renting our office and... We, we looked at this and I said, listen, we need, to, we need a bigger office and I feel we need to own the office and we need to build our financial reserve and we need to put ourselves in a stronger position. We'd come out of fighting with the French and spending lots of money on legal fees to, and, and, and we needed those, those resources to look after our members' interests. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went, right, okay, what, what I'm going to do is look at the pathways. Can we improve the pathways? Can we make it easier for people to to do courses? Um, so one of the things we started to look at was using Bayesley members in resorts and saying, you're going to represent Bayesley in our, in our resort and we're going to pay you a stipend to organise courses. So you we send the resources out, you pick them up, you organise the lecture facilities, but you can also promote Bayesley courses to people in the resorts. Mm-hmm. And we started to build and grow the organisation. 
Um, so the next year, without putting any prices up, um, I suddenly found we'd made £220,000 profit mm. um, from a £35,000 loss. Mm-hmm. And that was minimising overheads, minimising costs, and creating opportunities for people to do stuff. Um, and, and making courses more available in more venues. Uh, and, and sometimes it was, we had a big board up on the wall and it would be like, right, we've got a course in, uh, in, in uh, Hope None Does and there's only, there's only four people on it and we've got four weeks to go. Mm. We've got five courses that are full. I'm going to take a risk and go with that four and our break even was six. Mm. So it will run it and it would always turn into seven or eight or even a full course. And it was kind of running it uh, as a business that was providing a service. It was, can we provide a service? Can we create the opportunities? Can we make it easier? Because if somebody's living in Hope Nundas and they need to go to Verbier to do a course, hmm. they've got to travel. That's and it's, it's, it's an expensive yeah. exercise. Mm-hmm. And it was making things more achievable yeah. um, and, and more accessible. And in the end we ended up buying our, our new office and I think when I left the organisation it was like plus the office there was like a £600,000 reserve mm. and I did that in three years um, and uh, left it in a very very strong position um, uh, and it's crazy that after that, then 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 Basie started to make losses. Um, there the were crazy crazy expense accounts going on in the organisation, uh, and you know I, I don't know how they managed to spend all the money, but they did. Well, that um, office now has had to be sold as well, hasn't it? Well, they're trying to sell it, um, but but again, you know that that's there's no excuse for that. Um, to put it into that financial position, mm. um, because because it was a it's, it's a successful business. Yeah, there there are plenty of people wanting to do courses, and it's just about managing uh, managing the overheads, managing the costs, and there's no re and and Bayesley, and people talk about not for profit organisations. Bayesley's not for profit, mm. um, and and I never you know I didn't look at Bayesley as right, we need to make a profit. And, and the, the key thing about it is we need a financial reserve to protect our members' interests. Um, and after at that third year that I was in office, I started to talk about, well, let, let's reduce the course fees. Hmm. And they didn't, the board didn't like that. Um, because, well, anyway, so I was talking about reducing the course fees. Again, making the path, thinking about members' pathways, making yeah. it easier to achieve things. Um, but a not-for-profit organisation means you don't pay profits to the shareholders. Mm. To uh, you don't pay profits to to the directors. You don't have an ownership. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that the organisation doesn't make a profit and create a financial reserve and use those financial reserves for the interests of the members, which could be producing producing. Uh, educational resources like like DVDs or or now it's, it's beyond DVDs now it's mm-hmm. um, but, but producing video stuff yeah. um, and just just you know giving giving members 
free education once they're members, you know, like a, a free free refreshers yeah, and things resources, like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think the that was the culture that, that I created was what, what, what everything we do has to be to help the members. Mm. Um, uh, and, and somehow that seems to have got lost since I left. Um, and I don't know, they've managed to spend all the money um, and I think yeah. they've seen themselves as directors. <laughs> well, that's the thing that always struck me. Is the, the message got lost somewhere between 2009 and, and what Jim's doing now. You yeah. know, there was all this talk of, oh, you know, world-class organisations and this, that and the other. And, and it was all become very corporate. Yeah. It's not that, right? It's a members' organisation for training ski instructors to yeah. learn how to be ski instructors. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you're not reinventing the wheel. No, and I think James Lister is was was very is very clear on that, and, and I've got a lot of time for James Lister, uh, and his his values are, are, are very very strong. He he understands the organisation, mm. uh, and you know he, he's made it very clear. Um, you don't you don't work for Basie mm. to make a lot of money. If you want to be a millionaire, yeah, you don't do work that you, yeah. you do something else. <laughs> um, it's it's not a job where you you you, you and I, I think that was the the culture more recently is, is some of those people were were looking to to work for Basie to make a lot of money, mm. um, unfortunately, uh, and I think maybe the fact that I'd made it so successful and showed that you could make a lot of money out of the organisation and at that time, it was almost accidental, um, because just by by increasing the the activity, mm. suddenly we we made a lot of money. And that's why I started to say, well, actually, now we're in a position where we can reduce the course fees. Mm. Um, so anyway, um, that, that's, that's where it went. And, and uh, it's a shame that Basie's having to deal with the, the financial challenges that have been created at the same time as dealing with Brexit and COVID. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, but I, I think in, it will, the organisation will probably come out of this much stronger. It'll yeah, certainly come out leaner, won't it? It'll certainly become leaner, which yeah. isn't a bad thing. Yeah. And it'll be a great starting point um, in the next 18 months. And from what I've seen of the last 12 months, the, the, the management team are, are doing a brilliant job of, of uh, getting everything back in place to, to where it should be. Mm. Um, and uh, I think, uh, I just hope that um, it, it, it rebuilds itself. Um, into the organisation it should be yeah yeah me too well I think it's you know everyone is is behind them you know it's uh, they certainly lost touch with with the membership previously and the thing is about trust is that it's very easily lost it's very difficult to rebuild yeah that's one of the worst bits about it yeah yeah okay um right you know, you know what I'm going to ask you. Tell, tell me. For years, we've chatted in bars, and you've you've kind of brushed past it every time that we talked about it. But you used to go and teach in Austria, way back when. Yeah. Uh, when was that? And how did you end up living in a barn? <laughs> oh, you ski instructors who oh, modern day ski instructors who come out and get yourself a nice cushy apartment, you know, for X amount, thousand francs a year. I'm looking at talking to you, Max, uh, sitting yeah. here in your Lux apartment with three bedrooms. <laughs> Listen up. 
<laughs> yeah. So so that 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 year it was God. Um, it must have been about nineteen twenty. Um, <laughs> and there were four of us. Um, but one of them wasn't wasn't Willie. No, no, no. How is he? Uh, is he doing all right? Yeah, Willie's fine. Yeah, he's he's enjoying life as he always does. Um, Willie McMillan. Um, but yeah, Chris Guest, uh, Alan McGregor, um, and David Henderson, um, commonly known as Starsky. Um, but uh, the four of us, um, we we were we were all ski racers, and we got this opportunity to go and work for the ski school in Niederau. Right. And the boss there was a guy called Blackfelder. Um, and we, we got this old VW van and we created a little platform in the back where we could put the skis underneath. Yeah. And then we got some mattresses and we, we planned to go and work for the ski school. Um, so you were doing the van, van life. Yeah. We were van life before yeah. it was cool. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, we, we, we got this, this van and we, 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 we got it all sorted. Um, and, and trundled off to Austria uh, and we got there uh, just before it was like middle of December uh, and it was absolutely freezing um, and this guy Blackfelder who owns the ski school said oh right okay well um, that's great that you're here but we don't have any accommodation for you <laughs> so we're, we're going to work in the ski school and oh, Christ in the van, it's, it's bloody cold. So anyway, and he finds this this farmhouse. He says, "Okay, I found you. I found you this 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 place." And there's this farmhouse. And this farmhouse hasn't been lived in for decades, <laughs> and there's no heat. There's no electricity. Um, yeah. There's no there's no water. <laughs> uh, and we walked in, and the, there's mold on the walls, and there's water running down the walls, and it's incredibly damp. <laughs> Uh, but there is this big, massive wood-burning stove that we could cook on, and we could get these containers of water. Um, and we basically lived Christmas, New Year, or in, in this about three weeks in this place. And we eventually got an apartment um, after that, which is a tiny little apartment. Um, but anyway, we ended up cooking on this wood-burning stove, and the Blackfelder had a hotel um, and had a swimming pool. So, so that was where we went to have a shower. <laughs> but all our clothes, because it was in this incredibly damp, smelly place, um, our clothes just smelt of damp. Our yeah, uniform, yeah. everything just smelt of this mold. So, I see, yeah. so, you know, we're teaching people to ski and we've got this moldy <laughs> smell about us. <laughs> and, and there's nothing we could do. We were just, um, and I vividly remember New Year's Eve um, and the four of us are there, and and there's, there's a mouse problem. There there are, there are th- uh, there must have been ten thousand mice in this place, and you wake up in the morning and there'd be mouse droppings on your pillow. Oh no! Um, and you could you know you you switch. We had candles, and we had torches, and as soon as we we blew the candles out, you could hear the scuttling. Oh god! <laughs> so we for you we managed to finally get some mouse traps. <laughs> Um, and uh, New Year's Eve, I can remember, we got home and we'd set all the mouse traps. Lights out. Click, click, click. <laughs> <laughs> and we spent most of uh, New, New Year's Day, um, or the first sort of four hours of New Year's Day, um, picking mice out of mouse traps. <laughs> um, so that, you know, that was the life of a ski instructor. And, and then we would go to races. 
so we'd go to fist races so you know we'd work for the ski school and then then we'd book you know once a week we'd go and do a couple of days of fist racing and we we'd turn up um and we'd we'd find the the place and we'd book we booked into this this race and we'd sleep in the van four of you yeah four of us in the back like, of the van. like sardines <laughs> yeah uh, and the condensation in there was horrible in the morning <laughs> And I can vividly remember get stumbling out of the side door of the van, and it was bright orange, <laughs> and it looked and and this uh, Austrian ski racer turned up in his brand new BMW four wheel <laughs> drive, um, and uh, <laughs> and we are stumbling out, and we've got our numbers, and he looks at us and goes. and I think he was horrified (laughs) Uh, these four British guys um, stumbling out bleary eyed um, you know not not even slightly prepared to go (laughs) skiing Um, and we'd waxed our skis a couple of days before uh, and we'd stumble out and start scraping our skis and then go ski racing amazing Um, Amazing. so um, the 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 successes we got out of that were fairly limited, but we were we were reasonably successful. We yeah. got some good results, um, but uh, it was it was a great great period and uh, we had good times. It's funny, isn't it? When you're younger, the stuff you do, and you just like, yeah. you look back, you think it's just bananas. Yeah, and you know, again, it was it, it was finding a solution mm. to to doing what we needed to do yeah. um, w- without spending huge amounts of money. Did you uh, do that for many years, the, the Austrian? Thing? Um, we did that for, that was one year we did that. We, we changed the, the solution and we went and worked for a guy called Ernst Trankwalter. Um, so he became our coach and it was kind of similar, um, but it was like a full-time program with Ernst. Yeah. And he, he was uh, a, an ex-ski racer who, who was near, near Innsbruck. Uh, he was brilliant. Mm. Uh, and and he was completely and utterly insane as only some Austrians can be <laughs> um, and he would make us do crazy things uh, and we spent a lot of time for example skiing slalom with our hands tied together and skiing giant slalom with our hands tied together oh really? Um, what was his uh, rationale behind that? Um, well if you immobilise the upper body you yeah, have you to use your legs, your legs yeah. um, and we learned a hell of a lot from that uh, and his idea of downhill training was follow me and we didn't know what was coming next and you just have to stay on his tail uh, and again you, you you had to deal with things without any plan it was yeah, like, yeah. oh my god we're going that way and you, you'd be doing sort of 60, 70 miles an hour <laughs> and you suddenly find yourself airborne going oh shit <laughs> I've got to land oh, wow. um, uh, and he just took it and I think what Ernst did was he took us into that place of just using what we had to survive on our skis mm. Uh, and, and that was for me it, it changed a, a, my way of, of skiing in a, in a big way um, and I, I think I think he, he did a great job yeah um, scared the shit out of us oh, yeah, no. <laughs> but one of the funniest things was there's a place <coughs> off Axar Militsum um, which is called the Gutzner Abfart and it's I think it's like 14 kilometres long mm. and he would make us ski really good high quality long radius giant slalom turns all the way down we weren't allowed to stop 14 k's 14 k's and that was our our task and what he would do is he would ski down ahead of us yeah and he would climb a tree and hide in the tree and video oh right but we didn't know where he was 
So you had to do it. So, so we had to be good all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and one of the funniest things was he'd he put the camera in his bag and accidentally switched it on when he skied off. And we could hear him skiing down and then we could hear him climbing up the trees and branches breaking. And then his face appeared. <laughs> well, he got the video. But he would do crazy stuff like that. Um, and, 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 you know, he put us in situations where where we had to do stuff. Yeah. Uh, and and he, he, he was brilliant fun, but my God, he made us work. Um, that was that was a good, good times. Yeah. Um, but the same team of guys. Brilliant. Where are those guys now? Uh, ooh, um, two of them are still in Edinburgh. Um, so Alan, Alan McGregor, and uh, David Henderson. Um, Al, I've, I've actually lost touch with them, which is crazy. Um, Maybe this will prompt them to get back in yeah, touch and find yeah, it. I so. think I think I'll need to actually. I've lost touch. So. Unfortunately, the the other guy, Chris, that that season of the living with the mice. Unfortunately, he he died of a, a brain brain hemorrhage oh, no. during during that winter. That was no. that was um, that was a very um, difficult difficult period it, it, because I was sharing a room with him at the time. Oh, um, oh that's but, awful. Uh, that was very sad. Um, and Chris was a great guy. He, he was a good friend. Um, he must have been pretty young though. You were pretty young then. Yeah, yeah. He must have been eighteen, nineteen, about oh. eighteen. Yeah. It's not the first time I've heard of that. It does does happen. It does happen, um, uh, you know, and, and it happens, and uh, you know, it was very difficult, um, and uh, yeah, it, it was actually on the hill. We were we were doing a training. It was a downhill training day. Where yeah. It was training runs, and he collapsed at the start, and we. It was actually in Niederau the downhill. It was a fist downhill, um, and. We we'd gone back to teach in the afternoon, mm. and we wondered where he was. Yeah, and we got home and got a phone call and told he was in hospital, oh. uh, and he basically died. So it was a, a big shock. Anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll move on from that. Yeah, yeah, that's a shame. Um, <clears throat> tell me about this. Well, your thoughts on this coming winter? Permits Brexit. We've already sort of talked about. Um, I suppose the big biggest question, biggest questions are one: Are people going to be able to travel? Are we going to see a repeat of this winter where, you know, COVID is used as an excuse for people not to travel anymore, or not allowed to be travelled by by governments? If not, what do you think demand's going to look like this winter? Are you seeing anything that that says that? We've certainly taken a few bookings. Of very you know people that are are a bit more proactive than everybody else, yep. but there's been an awful lot of waiting and seeing, um, as there was last winter. But uh, what's your thought on what this um, this winter is going to look? Well, like? at this point, um, <coughs> our, our bookings are up. Uh, we, we are compared to this time, two years ago, three years ago, mm. our inquiries and bookings have actually increased. Right, um, and I think that's because an awful lot of people. Have, have missed out on their their skiing holiday yeah um and and they want they want their skiing holiday mm. um uh, and and you're right i think i think people are booking uh, and and one of our um one of our booking conditions is that um 
if we can't provide the lesson, then we can move it to another date. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are taking advantage of that yeah. and saying, we'll give you some money. Uh, we would like the lessons now. Yes. If we can't, we can move them to when we can yeah. have them. Yeah. Um, and, we do and, that. And it's just yeah. it's the right thing yeah. to do, right? Uh, and then, so it puts them in a place where, if assuming we can travel, mm. then, they, then they have lessons booked. Because for sure, the moment that it's very clear that everybody can travel, I think it's going to get get mobbed yeah yeah um so i think the smart people are going okay we will we will put that money away we'll Mm. we'll give you the money we'll book we'll 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 book the lessons we know that if you don't um if you can't provide them Mm. we can have them at a later date yeah um and and uh, and it'll give them first choice um yeah so i think i think the smart people are doing that um, and I think that's our, our, our policy is to is to say, yeah, you can have lessons and we'll be flexible with them. Mm. Um, and I think that's working. Yeah. Um, so uh, so yeah. at the moment, bookings are going up. As you say, will governments, will, uh, and I'm not even sure it's the governments. I think, I think the media have put so much pressure on the governments mm. um, uh, that... that any opportunity to stop people travelling seems <laughs> seems to be yeah. taken at the moment, yeah. um, uh, and and there, you know, I don't think in the long run our economies can't survive this constant um, stifling. No, um, no. Uh, you know, it's everything. You know, it's it's building. It's it's you know, people are talking now about you can't you can't get building materials anymore mm. so the cost of building has increased the cost of materials has gone up 40 percent in the last three months really? um because uh the factories haven't been producing stuff yeah uh, and apparently there's been a, a boom in building because nobody's got anything else to do <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um so yeah I, I think that the whole situation is crazy and and somehow we've got to get some common sense and um Whilst I understand, you know, the the, the virus is there and, and, and people have died, um, there comes a point where we need to get our vaccines and, and get away from this fear mm. um, of, 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 you know, people have become terrified to, of other people. Um, That's we, weird, isn't it? It's a horrible uh, feeling, though. Uh, and we, need to move, we need to move away from that and, yeah. and become human again. <clears throat> yes. Um, and... Uh, and, and you know we have got the vaccines and it's you know, mm. get your vaccine let's move on yeah. let's, let's become human again it seems to be the problem with the UK isn't it that they're, they're, they're still not letting people out to travel even though they've been vaccinated and those people must be feeling a little bit sold out and you say well you know, I've done what you've asked me to do why can't I go and do what I want to do now why can't I take this mask off why can't I go on holiday yeah. because I've done everything you asked. You know, look, it's only so long that. Well, I think we've seen it over the over the last eighteen months. Is is there's almost a rebellion to it, particularly amongst mm. the younger people. Mm. You know, it's like we we want to live our lives, and yeah. I feel so sorry for young people with their education, with their work opportunities. Um, you know, people in their sort of fifteen to twenty five year olds, that mm. are particularly British people with Brexit. They, they, their opportunities have been so reduced. Um, well, not only that, but they're also going to be saddled with this enormous debt that the government's taken on to, yeah. to, to, to keep this thing going. Yeah. So I feel really sorry for those people. Hmm? Um, and I, I, th- I, I think the government's going to struggle to keep, 
to keep this mm. going without some kind of rebellion going on. Yeah, um, well, I'd hope so. But, um, I hope so, because I think the governments need to realise that they're not the be-all and end-all solution of everything. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's, but again, well, we sit here in France and, and you certainly... I rail against big government anyway, you know, it's my, my thing. <laughs> um, I just want to be left alone to get on with what I want to do. But, uh, but yeah, but the, the, the selling out of the, the young people across countries all over the world is, is just outrageous. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. And um, I think they need to get the balance right. And I don't, but I don't think the media helps. Every time a government starts to, to open things up, there's mm. this, this, the media just get into this fear. Yeah. Oh my God! What are the government doing? They're killing people. Yeah, <laughs> good news. Good news doesn't sell, though, does it? No, it That's doesn't. The thing. Um, and you think that they will be a little bit more compliant, given that the major, the vast majority of advertising on any form of media now comes from the government. Government spend. Yeah. You know, because the the government is pushing you know their message, and the majority of it goes through the newspapers and the and, and the uh, and the advertising through television and stuff. It's uh, yeah, it's it's a very strange strange times we're living in right now. Mm, okay, so aside from COVID, aside from Brexit and permits and not finding any staff, you're all set by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I think I think I don't think we'll be assuming we're 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 not limited to, with travel. Yeah. Um, and the lifts are open. Um, I think we'll be very busy. Oh, you'll be up there doing your usual yeah. Yeah. millions of hours and in all weathers. Yes, absolutely. You're the one that I'm. Whenever I ring you up, you're always on a lift. Yeah. Even if it's raining. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's no such thing as bad weather. Yeah, yeah, just just non-Scottish people. Yeah. It's only bad clothing and bad attitude. <laughs> yeah, all right. Good. Um, okay, uh, so give yourself a plug again, because uh, we did it on the first one, but do it in case anyone wants to contact you to ski in Chatel this winter. Uh, where can people find you if they need you? Yeah, um, the, the website is um, British Ski School dot com slash chatel um, and we have an email address which is chatel at com. okay perfect alright well thank you very much again for your time I'm glad we got to finish this off because there's so much amazing stuff out of this and so much brilliant content that everyone should hear and know so thank you and I'll see you on the hill yep. well hopefully on the French side this winter as yes, opposed absolutely. to the Swiss side. Yep, get out and have some fun. Exactly. Thanks, man. Cool.